Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the NeuroNoodle Network Podcast News Notes Edition. I'm P. Jansons and alongside me will be Anthony Ramos. He's a passionate enthusiast and connoisseur of technology content in the realms of mental health and well-being. In our show, we delve into the latest news, innovative research, and emerging trends in neuroscience and mental health. Anthony brings a fresh perspective as a dedicated follower and fan sharing insights and reflections on our past NeuroNoodle podcast episodes, as well as his take on the latest developments in the field. Whether you're a professional, a student, or simply someone fascinated by mental health and neuroscience, join us as we explore these topics in a format that's informative, engaging, and accessible to all. So without further ado, let's dive into what's new and noteworthy in the world of mental health and neuroscience and just plain old technology. Let's hear Anthony's thoughts on our previous discussions and current trends. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. I can hear you. Oh, perfect. All right. This is, uh, it's been a while since I've done this. Thanks for having me on. Sorry it took me a little bit to, to be comfortable with the idea. Yeah, no problem, man. We're, I we're think throwing... you said, oh, what's that? We're throwing something up against the wall, see if it sticks. Yeah, you got a lot of interesting content out there. Oh, I appreciate it. And uh, I think other people would like to uh, listen to it, at, you know, as well as read it, uh, you know, listen to what you got going on. Yeah, when you said um, we could talk about kind of the news, that really made me a lot more comfortable because I felt, gosh, I don't have to be as authoritative as Jay here. I can just kind of, um, you know, <laughs> talk about what the the other authorities are saying so to speak yeah yeah. so that helped a lot i appreciate it yeah no problem hey turn on your cam let's see you oh i don't have the cam on i tell i haven't used this much let me find out the here here i'll uh okay i have video i think i figured it out there you go okay great hey awesome man yeah thanks so Um, tony anthony what do you want anthony's good anthony that's how i grew up preferred Yeah, man. And you're up in, uh, is it Michigan or Illinois or? Chicago area. There you go. Okay. Lived here two, three years. Yeah, you had a, you had the simultaneous fast talking, but also I think you have a Midwest uh, friendliness to you. So that's nice. Well, it depends. It depends. It can depend. That's what okay. we talk about, you know. But I do uh, pick up interesting things from your questions to Jay about what can NFL athletes do? I saw that guy on Netflix, that quarterback who's doing, uh, Kirk Cousins. Yeah. Kirk Cousins. Was it? Yeah. And <clears throat> my, my boss actually mentioned, he saw that he was like, Hey, this thing you like is on. Cause he's a, he's a football guy too. So. Yeah. 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 
Well, there's a lot, yes, of stuff going, a lot of stuff going on out there. And as you said, you know, we got Jay Gunkelman and he's got a fixed amount of time because everybody's on his calendar, you know, to. Oh, yeah. To, to get mentored. And then same with Dr. Marie. Well, and what then, you, yeah. And, and then you, as I said, uh, you, you put little interesting blurbs out there. And uh, I appreciate uh, open mind, you know, fresh thinking, you know, don't I don't worry about that. offending anybody. Just, hey, man, this is what's out there. What do you think? And uh, yeah, people tell me I can be a little direct on the uh, on Facebook. I tend to be a little more diplomatic in person, but um, well, that's why we're on Zoom. There you go. You're going to help me with my image. I was yeah. just reading a study like right before you called neuroscience news. It says uh, the way that people represent themselves or are seen on Facebook is not a true representation. They said the multimedia, they said things like video and photo is more, more reflective. So you're, yeah. uh, you're helping me out here. <laughs> well, there's a market uh -huh. for everybody. It's just people want to consume information a certain way. Some yeah. people don't have an hour to like physically watch something. So you have to do it in bits and pieces. And that's kind yeah. of your little, your segment here. I think we can put a bunch of little, we can focus on mental health, but we can focus on, you know, other things as, as well, because I have my thinking cap on. I saw we'll, that. Yeah. We'll do some thinking <laughs> on, uh, on the show, but before we yes. get to it, Anthony, uh, what, what's your background? Yeah. So, um, I went to University of Florida and did business um, and political science, but really took to mental health in past years. And science has been a big interest for me, mainly because, you know, I had a problem I couldn't solve. Um, and that's something that neurofeedback, only Jay and neurofeedback has been able to help me. Yeah, yeah. I can get into that. Uh, it's probably a problem a lot of people have trouble with sleep. Um yeah. As far as work these days, though, I am a social media manager. So that's part of why you see me on there, but uh -huh. in the, the health and fitness space. So nutrition, right. I work for a nutrition PhD, um, a kinesiology exercise science uh, PhD candidate, and um, a couple of other brands. And um, yeah, I guess I just, I'm researching things all day, either for one job or the other, and I'm, I'm posting. Right, right. So, so yeah. So of, of your posts, I thought we could just get together and then you could just run down the things that you've, you know, put out there and make yeah. comments or, you know, I'll say you're yeah. full of it or I agree with it, you know. No, I'm happy to. And um, yeah, I just tried to pick up maybe some interesting stuff this week. I just wanted to say, like, you know, the neurofeedback community on Facebook, I, I feel like it's actually pretty good. And there's some good groups on there you know people like jay are on there oh. and people are like how do you know jay it's like man if you if you are open on facebook you might get a response from him too and right uh, and so i've been trying to share there's a great uh brain master has a great group by the way that i feel like everybody there are really interested in the brain and the the neurofeedback community that i discovered on there you know helped me get into neurofeedback i feel like they're some of the first people with answers um, you know, I was able to attend Jay's conference remotely and just something as simple as like, uh, 
why are some people responding to psychiatric medication and some do not, they get no benefit or it goes horribly wrong. And I feel like you guys, you know, you had Martine arms and he showed, you know, they're just using the alpha frequency, someone's alpha, alpha frequency in their EEG. And they can tell you from there, uh, you know, what is the most likely treatment they're most likely to respond to? Is it ketamine? Is it uh, TMS, transcranial magnetic? These are things people need to know. Um, and so I've been trying to relate all these things I'm picking up from you guys to the news. Um, I'll give you one like last week. And I don't know if we want to screen share at some yeah, point. Here, let me turn it on for you. Yeah. A good idea. I got one right here. I don't know if you can see my screen right now. This study here, um, I don't know if I need to move that, but um, this one here, autism and beyond unveiling overlapping neurotypes. And in it, they say 76.2% of children with autistic traits also exhibited ADHD traits um, and 55% met the criteria. You know, this is a brand new study. This is January 15, 2024. Uh -huh. And if you've been listening to Jay at all, or um, many of the people in this community, you know, neurofeedback people, EEG people have known this. And one of the reasons I, I, if I had to guess that Jay would point out is because both autism and ADHD, you know, he loves to mention that they both share a feature, which is called subclinical epileptic discharges. 50 to 60%, I think Jay says, of autistic sufferers have epileptic discharges, subclinical meaning they may not be having seizures, but you can see it in the brain scan. And he likes to say, I think he says 30 to 50% of ADHD sufferers also have this. So we have uh, psychiatrists that don't know this, you know, and this is not something that neurologists are testing for, you know, if they're not seeing um, a clear seizure, but these are so-called subclinical. Um, it's the marker of a seizure. And as Jay says, it can manifest as anything. It can manifest as lapse of attention. It can manifest as behavioral issues. And so it's just after listening to you guys reading a bit, and I'm seeing these news stories, it's like, man, uh, why did the academics, well, some of them did, because that's where Jay's yeah. getting it from. Why is this such news to them? You know, And why aren't we allowing this to change our treatment uh, for these things. Why aren't we testing with neuroimaging, you know? So uh, I get fired up at the same time, but I also try to inform people and you can find, you can find answers to these questions is what's cool with the EG. Um, I have a friend who took her daughter in for uh, ADHD like symptoms recently uh, to the psychiatrist and they gave her a stimulant medication. And before she did, she asked me, she said, uh, you know, do you think that's going to be a good idea? And I said, you know, from listening to Jay, there's about a 30 to 50% chance that if she has these subclinical epileptic discharges, or if she has, I think uh, he also calls them paroxysms in the paper, um, which are these like these sharp bursts of energy in the EG, that that medication may not work. And sure enough, uh, the medication, it made her daughter, in her words, it gave her rage and they had to take her off of it. And so they're now, you know, I was kind of amazed. We now have a psychiatrist in our town uh, here in Gainesville who does EEG. And so they're going to be able, I think, to see that. And, you know, if I need to send them Jay's papers or something to help them select a medication, hopefully try neurofeedback treatment. 
So that was one of the first stories in the past week I thought would be a good one. You know, it's, <clears throat> I don't understand. You, you get a physical every year, you get mm -hmm. a baseline of your heart and, you know, weight and yeah, we don't get a baseline of above the neck. Yes. I, I don't because nobody's paying for it. <laughs> it won't cover yeah. it. We have, you know, I, I was talking to an MD who I, I really respect and he's, he's actually started neurofeedback since meeting me. We're good friends and he's yeah. getting fit, but I asked him why some of this isn't used. And, you know, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase him wrong, but things to the effect of like, we know it isn't proven to the same degree that say use of medications is or whatever. Yeah. And by that means more need, data. Yeah. More data. We need randomized clinical trials. He now he uses it. So he is open to it, yeah, yeah. but for doctors to recommend it. And actually he has, but for them to make it part of their, their best practices or their standards, they call it medical standards. Yeah. We need more research, but you know what I looked up and I, he would agree with this. I think most of the treatments doctors use do not have randomized clinical trials. There's a study out there that I can find. I forgot to today, but I think they said maybe 40%. And most of them don't have these things called Cochrane reviews, which is like a very rigorous review. And I think my doctor friend would agree too. Um, you know, do you really need a randomized clinical trial? I think he's even says something like this to tell you, you know, take aspirin when you have a headache or, or get a cast when you have a broken bone. And I think what he would say is, you know, if the side effects are low enough and if there's encouraging data and if it's not too expensive, then go for it. And so he is, he's doing it and he's starting to tell his patients so just because we can't, um, you know, prove everything beyond the highest level of statistical significance doesn't mean people should be afraid to give us a try. Uh, so and and I personally have seen amazing transformations. So that's yeah. why I'm going to continue to recommend it. And hopefully we'll have that data. Well, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about Ozempic, man. Mm hmm. OK. That, I love it. That, that's more than just weight loss. I mean, that's yes. cravings, addictions, uh, and the inter interior cingulate. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. That hits the switch there. Who cares how the switch was flipped, right? Yeah. People need to yeah. know that's what it is. And here are the different things that you can do. Not one size fits all, but... Some people do the Ozempic and they lose their five, 6% and that's all that they lose on it. Yeah. You know? And you, you, you hit a wall. Um, and there's side effects. Side, yeah. Yeah. Side effects. But uh, I mean, that's, that's almost how it works in a way. Cause it makes you nauseous. I mean, I've heard, yeah. I've heard doctors describe it, but um, this is another thing. I think you said it on the podcast. You made the perfect comment. Something like does Ozempic prove that, obesity is something in the brain or there's a related to the brain. And I think it absolutely, it absolutely does. Um, because, you know, and, and neurofeedback people, I mean, Jay is always talking about reward sensitivity issues. Mm -hmm. Food is a reward. You know, we're drawn to it. People with these issues are too drawn to it. Same with addiction. Um, and that is why I think you guys mentioned People are reporting and there's now case studies and formal studies showing that Ozempic is helping people uh, with alcohol, with other drugs. And so that to me, that's not an appetite issue. You know, that's probably not yeah. their digestive system. This right. is hitting the brain and clinicians are becoming more aware. 
I was tipped off to this when I said to myself, I've started to think of the EEG as how can I understand better what a medication is doing that's either given to a friend or in the news? And if you look up Ozempic, you find out that it elevates, I believe this is memory, yeah. elevates theta waves. And if you hear Jay talking in Jay's phenotype yeah. paper, this may not be true, perfectly true everywhere, um, but the uh, the theta waves are related to uh, dopamine metabolism. And dopamine is a reward hormone. Um, so, and, and, and so the idea being, I think you're mentioning the anterior cingulate, that's this area where we're controlling our external focus. It's executive control. It's top-down control, inhibition, making decisions where we put our attention that Ozempic is, is probably helping this area, just like neurofeedback can seem to help. And as Jay mentions, this anterior cingulate area is involved in addiction, but it's also involved in ADHD. And it may be, I think there may be one small study out there right now on eating disorders and things like that. So hopefully we can get out there one day, you know, if we can clean up these, clear the brain, as Jay says, yeah, in yeah. the areas like the anterior cingulate, we can help you not just with obesity, but like Ozempic, we can help you with potentially other temptations. And um, not only that, it'll be much lower side effect. You won't have to worry you know, I, my, my nutrition clients just did a podcast on Ozempic about a week ago or this week. And, um, they said like, man, this drug shows how badly people want to lose weight because he has clients telling him, yeah, you know, it, it makes me throw up once a week, you know? And, and he says, for me, that's, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, but, but he understands the desire to lose weight because he's, you know, he's, he's had all the same issues in his life too. So, it's just the, the irony of it, it's okay, it's 1600 bucks, insurance won't cover it, but they'll insure, they'll pay I love know, that. tenfold a lot more for this other stuff, you know? So Yeah, people uh, are paying like a thousand bucks a month for Ozempic. <clears throat> and you know what, as you mentioned, um, for some people, they don't get all the same weight loss. For some people, the side effects are much worse. And I'll tell you what else, um, it's likely I posted one day. So the drug works primarily the action is on this thing called the GLP-1 receptor in, in the brain. And um, the action there plateaus, um, The uh, which, which is why you'll hear reports. It's a bit early, but you'll hear people saying, oh, yeah, after a year or two, maybe my weight loss started to plateau and it gets slower, you know. So conceivably, uh, I, I was surprised I didn't see too many neurofeedback studies on eating yet, but if somebody out there wants to do it, I think it's, as Jay says, it's a, it's a sound theoretical basis. It's based on real science about how that anterior cingulate controls our attention um, and where we get our rewards from. So I would love to see more data. Uh, and, and anecdotally, I'll tell you, I, believe it or not, I'm, I'm somebody who has always struggled with weight. Um, I lost weight a few years ago, but since I have done, I can't say for sure. It's anecdote. Yeah, my weight has been extremely stable since I began neurofeedback. Um, and I'm just one person, so take that for what right, it's right, worth. Right, right, In my adult life, I don't think I've ever clustered around. I feel like I'm in the same three pounds for a couple of years now. And that, I mean, uh, put it this way: I was I was picked on for being a bigger kid, and even in college, I would get ribbed. And yeah, so so. Uh, all I, all I can say it's helped. It's helped me. Tell me who they are. I'll kick their butt. So, You're good. Okay. I needed you when I was growing up. There we go. 
So digital Ozempic, uh, you know, digital. Yes, I love that. I think, you know, we got a marketing issue. We got an insurance issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an end game issue. Nobody wants to have an end game on services, you know. Ooh, will they not need us or will, yeah. will we not need them rather? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So come on. You know, guys. yeah. In the nutrition industry, we talk about that. There's all these articles coming out. You know, the topic of my clients' podcasts in the health and fitness industry is, you know, is there a need for nutrition or health and fitness bloggers in a world of Ozempic? Um, And I think there is because, you know, there are people who are not always going to want to use that, which is why they should come try out neurofeedback and get their reward sensitivity recalibrated. Um, But also even Walmart posted, um, or I think it was a comment on an earnings call that they're seeing that their customers that have Ozempic prescriptions because they have a pharmacy they can see, mm-hmm. those customers are already buying less food. And there was a New York Times article this past week, two days ago I read, that they're wondering, um, is craving, the concept of craving, you know, you can't have just one. Is that going to be effective marketing anymore in a world where people do not have uncontrollable cravings? But um, but maybe we could achieve that without the expensive drugs and I would love to see that. Well, technology got us into this problem. It's got to be able to get mm. us out, uh, you know, corn and sugar and, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. that, that had to have played a role. I'm not sure when the corn, <clears throat> when the government started uh, subsidizing that and it became more of the 60s, 70s. I don't know what it was, but I think that's when, yeah. things, you know, went to crap. What else you, you know, got on here for us, Anthony? Well, let's see here. I have a couple. I have a, a few studies. Uh-oh, it's got my little browser missing there. Um, yeah, so there was a little bit. Um, oh, um, I wanted to talk about um, PTSD would be one. Yeah, yeah. This is a chart that I don't know. I I think Mari has talked on this, uh, talked with this about you guys. This chart is from uh, Ruth Lanius, Dr. Ruth Lanius, who's a big MD researcher on PTSD. And she uses EEG and she uses neurofeedback. Um, uh, another guest of yours, uh, Seaburn Fisher. I think Dr. Ruth may have been a guest. They, they were they, they were both on the show. Yep. Yeah, I love it. And this is a this is an MRI from Dr. Lanius's studies on PTSD sufferers. And I thought it was relevant. I think it's a cool chart. What this is talking showing is the activity of a network called uh, the DMN, the default mode network. Uh, they see it say right down here. And essentially what this says is um, these are these are normal people on the left or, you know, normal, but non-PTSD sufferers. And these are PTSD sufferers on the right. And if you notice, the DMN is the red stuff. If you notice, the, DSN, the DMN is weaker in the PTSD sufferers. It's less active on that upper right corner at rest. So um, I thought this was important because a study came out the other day. Um, well, how to start with it. Um, basically, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but PTSD sufferers, I think they're even said to be more empathetic. It feels like people who have been through trauma are more sensitive to the trauma of others. And I guess the article I'm reacting to is a New York Times article and more that that came across the other day called Powerful and Cold-Hearted. And what they found out is, there's there's a lot of studies on this. When people gain power, they somehow, and they don't know precisely why, in several studies, they seem to be less sensitive to the needs and the pain of others. And um, there's even 
there's an ERP study, which is a brainwave study that Jay likes, but this is just a quick study. They found that people that have power, when when people were induced, so they, I forget how they induced them, but they um made them feel powerful in the study. And then they showed them the actions of others. Um, those people, their brain showed no resonance or no reaction to the actions of others. Whereas participants who had felt powerless, they resonated with the actions of others quite a bit. And so why am I talking about this? So if empathy is related to the action of that DMN network I was just showing, you know, one of the interesting things about psychedelics that everybody is using, mm -hmm. psychedelics also seem to deactivate this DMN network. They do other things as well, but that is one of the things. And you'll hear people say, you know, I felt that one with the universe, you know, the DMN, I forgot. I don't know if I mentioned it's, it's a seat of, or it's part of the sense of self. So a PTSD sufferer, and this is for clinicians out there who probably already know this, but anybody else, maybe that right. PTSD sufferers sometimes are lacking that sense of self, but that for other people, maybe losing that sense of self in a psychedelic trip could be therapeutic. Um, and so I just think that's really interesting, manipulating the sense of self. And a lot of times this is a focus for neurofeedback. So um, Dr. Lanius's treatment, and sorry if this is getting a little in the weeds, but um, her treatment, she often does uh, alpha down at PZ, which is PZ is the parietal network, which is, I think I'm pointing to it here with my mouse here on the upper right. So yeah. they're often manipulating the activity. Sometimes they'll do alpha up but they'll manipulate the activity. And that's one of Seaburn Fisher's favorite treatments for trauma. And one, and Dr. Lanius has studies on alpha down at, at PZ, the parietal lobe. And they find, I mean, Seaburn Fisher, if you read her book, I think I've heard her on your podcast, you know, she's seen transformations in as little as one session because it's known as a very powerful treatment. So I, I uh, you know, I'd love people to know about all sorts of neurofeedback. This is one too, that we could help people all by manipulating the same way psychedelics do, but you don't have to have the bad trip uh, with neurofeedback. And maybe in, you know, according to Seaburn Fisher, one session potentially. So pretty cool stuff, I thought. Well, PTSD, uh, what did it come out this this past or last year? I mean, it's F, FDA said, hey, we, we acknowledge it. Uh, thumbs up for uh, PTSD. Roofs up in Canada, and yes. uh, they have you know a little bit bigger budgets. But even in Canada and the okay. U.S., all, all the uh, the vets are using it for PTSD. If it's good for the vets, why mm -hmm. isn't it more you know mainstream? Yeah, I guess there's uh, end game. <laughs> so they're they're doing more research in this with with vets. Oh yeah, veterans. Um, yeah, that is, and obviously, I think a lot of people have heard of Body Keeps the Score. Um, which is uh, by Bessel van der Kolk. And that was the first MRI scans of of, uh, of trauma that I recall, and or that I believe they're the first ever. And um, he found uh, a lot of very interesting things going on in their brain as well. Um, I also wanted to talk about, uh, speaking of trauma, I wanted to talk about addiction. You know, why are these things like addiction, ADHD, obesity, um, what could be a reason that they're all correlated beyond they're happening in the same brain region? There was a Kaiser Permanente study. They found that trauma is a 4,600% risk factor for addiction. 
actually this stuff. There it is, 4,600%. But anyway, I don't know if you can read that. Uh, anyway, so people can get it. I'll show the name, childhood trauma and addiction, the 4,600% risk factor. And um, Jay has talked about phenotypes. You know, Jay has his paper and the phenotypes in the anterior cingulate that affect so elevated alpha, theta, or beta there are related both to addiction um, and ADHD and even disordered eating. There's other phenotypes of, of these things too, like um, ones that are more anxiety related and things that have to do with arousal. But all these things need to be related. And I and why would trauma do this? Well, they trauma is not just an emotional injury. Early life trauma, as we know, this is old hat, so I know a lot of your viewers, but it physically changes the brain. It damages the brain. It can cause things like inflammation that stay around, that the brain has trouble repairing. And it could be affecting people late into adulthood. Um, and, you know, this is not just neurofeedback people. There's an addiction MD. Uh, he's big on YouTube. His name's Howard Wetzman. And um, he was actually the first person to alert me to this relationship between uh, addiction and uh, ADHD and obesity. If you Google those three things, they're all correlated. And they're all related to trauma. If you have trauma, you have a higher risk of all three. Um, and he's he actually uses genetic testing to try to find out um, which phenotype you have and then tell him which drug you have. But, you know, I let him know about JZEG studies and the phenotypes for, for ADHD. And he was actually fairly open to it. So I find that... Um, I actually find that doctors can be can be open now whether they have the solutions and whether they have the, the information that we have. So I don't know what the answer is. You know, I'm not a university researcher. I'm uh, definitely not Anthony. Have, but when yeah. you go to the doctor's office and they give you that stupid clipboard and those ten pieces of paper to fill out the history, why don't they just ask for the genome to spit in the tube, then come yeah, back? Yeah, you know. This guy used to do that. He ran a genetics lab in his addiction treatment center. Um, so he could try to pair you with the best inform, um, the best drug. Yeah. But, you know, we have drug-free treatment for a lot of people, for most people. It seems to work. For 80, uh, neurofeedback seems to work for about 80% of people in a lot of different studies. And Jay has a famous study uh, that he talks about a lot. They gave neurofeedback to school children that were diagnosed with Ritalin. And the neurofeedback, I have this study. There's actually a few studies that did similar. But anyway, this was a controlled trial. I think, uh, I don't know how you randomize that, but it was a controlled trial. And anyway, um, we can randomize it. You can't blind it. They know whether they got neurofeedback, I guess. But um, anyway, anyway, the children that received neurofeedback, they received, they called it Ritalin-like effects in this paper. But not only that, and Jay has said this, but when the Ritalin stopped, their behavior improvement stopped. You know, their ADHD largely came back. When the neurofeedback people stopped, they showed an improvement symptoms a year out. And as Jay says, people are even reporting improvements above and beyond a year to two years out. And that's just where in this study they stopped measuring, you know, who knows? And as we know, a lot of clinicians know, come back to them two years, they'll probably be doing even better in certain areas, you know? So uh, it's pretty incredible the tool that we have and it's crazy to me how many doctors I'll talk to and other people that they just, they don't even know about it. You know, doctors don't even know the EEG. I have a close MD friend and he says, yeah, like we only learned the EEG 
for seizures, for clinical seizures. Jay talks about white matter or something like that. He's like, that's not, that's not commonly used for that purpose to, to verify a dementia diagnosis. Maybe it is. He says, um, this is how rare EEG is in a doctor's world that I, that I can tell. He says, we have the, we don't, he goes, I don't even know what the EEG doctors are called beyond neurologist. There's neurologists, but the people who's particularly specialist EEG, he says in the hospital, we just call them the EEG fellows because I don't even know what they're called. And there's so few of them. He says, there's like three of them. Um, so it's, it's this underutilized tool. Um, I could probably go on forever, but Jay talks about every, uh, every study you open. I read, I read every study every day. I mean, all the science needs. Yeah. They're all using MRI. Their EEG's growing. EEG's growing, but their favorite is MRI. And Jay talks about, you know, MRI is not great in the time resolution or time domain. It doesn't tell you when a particular part of a brain was active, for how long, what type of activity was there. So I have I have academic friends. I live in Gainesville, so I'm next to UF. I went to yeah. UF. They're all using MRI. I don't think anyone ever heard of some of the studies that Jay points out. Like that if you put a salmon in an MRI, a dead salmon, it shows brain activity, you know, and it's um, the other thing is there's a meta study out there that shows that MRI is not reproducible. Um, uh, it's something like it's they can create the same result that if they scan twice or do the same study twice, they get the same result, like maybe half the time. Uh, so, you know, I do have a UF neurology friend. He is familiar with this. He doesn't use EEG yet or neuroimaging a lot of, I don't think yet, but right. he's a pharmacy professor at UF and he is, he is familiar. So anyway, um, we've got the, and our tool is cheaper. Um, one thing I have heard, I will say is the word used, the scans are futsy. You know, you need a skilled practitioner to do this right. Um, and there's training involved and there's labor involved, you know? I don't know how much labor precisely is involved in MRI, um, but it seems to be you need, you don't just want to go to anybody for no feedback. Um, right. I always get them looped into somebody that you guys know or that Jay knows when people come to me asking. So I've had Jay telling me, do you know anybody in London? Do you know anybody in, uh, you know, California, obviously California and, and right, every, right. anywhere, Canada? Um, because I find that you know, just because you go somewhere doesn't mean you're going to get a good reference EEG. You're going to get the best treatment. So, well, so yeah, a lot of work I'm, we need. To do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a neuro genius. I'm a over glorified video editor, and I'm not but, yet. <laughs> but um, the TMS, when you're pointing that yes. magnet, okay. Yes. Why wouldn't you do an EEG to find out where you want to? point it versus messing around and have somebody wiggle their fingers say oh oh, that's the spot yeah you know i would love to know more about where they're at with neuroimaging i guess uh martin arns is the researcher that seems to have he had a great presentation at jay's conference at um sassoon conference um but um with regards to tms i think they said that the outcome is roughly similar if they're using that thing called the five inch rule or something or the inch five yeah. centimeter rule. It's just a guideline, but we're probably going to find other places to use that magnet, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I do want to see neuroimaging done. Um, I just saw a study actually just yesterday of MRI guided TMS, and they claim that they improve the treatment. 
I don't know, did they say 15 to 30%, something like that? So there is improvement. And, but, but Arns is do, showing that he shows you can get a better depression treatment. If the psychiatrist just knows what's your alpha peak frequency, like I said, and you can go from, I think he uses 20 to 30%. You know, we hear about TMS a lot, right? Yeah. Arns's studies, the studies he shows are saying 20 to 30% efficacy. But if you, I think that's, um, it's either remission or response rate. But if you know the person's alpha peak frequency, you can raise that to 50 to 60%. Um, I'll tell you what else. This is just an interesting anecdote for you. If anybody of your viewers are considering TMS, you know, sleep is a huge issue in TMS. There's a study out there showing if you're not sleeping, your TMS will not work. Um, and I first became alerted to this. So we have a Yale psychiatrist in town that I, I'm friends with, and he did an open house on this. And um, he was talking about how, if you think of your neurons as these little trees and uh, cortisol released from stress can break the tree. Well, TMS through releasing something called BDNF can repair the tree. And they showed these mouse slides and it's like a little shriveled tree. And then they give them a particular treatment. It might've been ketamine. This, that tree regrows. And so I said, gosh, well, if you're, and he says, this happens during sleep which is true for neurofeedback too, by the way, the learning from neurofeedback, it's happening truly during sleep. It's called synaptic plasticity or long-term potentiation. That happens during sleep. So I said, if that's happening during sleep, um, do, do your patients that don't sleep well get a worse outcome? And he said this, it, he said, it's, that's a good question. He said, this is what I found. The studies that I was seeing on TMS, which we know that these, there's some dispute here, but he's saying, I was seeing that I should be getting like an 80% response rate to TMS, but I was only seeing like a 50% in my patients. So then one day, and I couldn't figure out why he said one day, one of my patients said to me, oh yeah, and I'm getting a sleep study. And, or he said something like, I'm not sleeping yeah. and they come down and you need a sleep study. So he says, now I started sending my patients to sleep studies before I do TMS and my response rate doubled or it went up to that 80%. Yeah. He says, now I will not even do TMS on you unless you get a sleep study. But again, we can bring this back to neurofeedback. Sleep is a man, sleep is a, uh, you know, Nikki Whitridge, I think you've had him yeah. on. Yeah. He just put up a video yesterday called, it's something like, it's not sick and tired and not gonna take it. It was, it was this has to stop was the name of the video. He's doing a video project on his journey to get better sleep. He started yesterday. I think he's already met with Jay and he's yeah. having his EG. This is the journey that brought me to neurofeedback because I had tried everything for sleep. And I, I almost get angry nowadays. There's these sleep experts that come on podcasts that don't know EEG. And to me, if you don't know EEG, you don't know anything about sleep. Because first of all, that's how sleep studies are done. But more than that, we know about things like your SMR, your sensory motor rhythm, if it's not strong, if it doesn't fire, the sleep spindle fires and you get woken up too easily. But none of these sleep doctors know this. And so their advice to me, granted, this may work for 15% of people, 30, yeah. none of it has ever worked for me. The sleep, I don't need a doctor to tell me or a university researcher to tell me, oh, well, just put down your phone and you'll sleep. No, didn't work for me. You know, oh, just turn the light, get rid of blue light, put blackout curtains, take melatonin, take magnesium. I tried everything. And you know, my MD friend, he said this to me one time. He said, we don't have good sleep medicine. That's a direct quote. For, and what he means is all of the medications they can give you that work 
are habit forming. They're things like Ambien and benzodiazepines. Those work great, but their Ambien is called a Z drug and they work in a similar fashion to benzos, which as you know, are some of the most addictive and dangerous drugs. Ambien is addictive too, habit forming. And so he had, he's like, I have nothing I can give you that's not, the one thing they can give you are histamine drugs. So they will give people essentially, they're called tricyclic antidepressants. They'll give people things like Seroquel and Remeron and Trazodone, which are very strong drugs. Um, they're, um, I think some of them are antipsychotic, some of them are, are uh, antidepressant. But the main way they're putting you to sleep is through histamine. They're essentially a very strong antihistamine drug and it, just like a Benadryl will make you sleepy, these are very strong Benadryl. And people report, I have friends that have tried these. You know, it was the only way they could get sleep. They haven't tried neurofeedback yet, but it was the only way. Um, they wake up, they feel dead. I mean, they feel, they, they're jet lagged the whole rest of the day. Or in the case of some of them, they cause major weight gain. So these drugs are not the best way. Meanwhile, we have SMR. SMR neurofeedback, as Jay talks about, um, it has been compared to so-called the doctor's gold standard. The best practice, the medical standards for a doctor for insomnia is something called CBTI. CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy, insomnia. You essentially, you answer a bunch of questions and guided prompts to get you to, I mean, think about your sleep differently and to change your relationship to sleep. That is the doctor's gold standard. And why is it the gold standard? Because like I said, the medications are habit forming. And it seems to have some efficacy, but they compared that CBTI to SMR in two studies. I think one of them is a meta study. And they found out that SMR worked better than CBTI. And not only did SMR neurofeedback work better than CBTI, SMR was the only thing that actually improved the physiological markers of sleep, the deep sleep brain waves that are when your body are regenerating. They said the only thing that CBTI did was improve your subjective appreciation of sleep. In other words, the guy was not sleeping any longer. Okay. The, all that happened was he feels less bad about it. And I'm not going to say that's nothing, but we've got something that could actually enhance sleep. And when I did SMR, you know, I'm actually still doing it. I was able to nap for the first time in 10 years. I used to be this guy who's up, you know, once I'm up, I'm up for, you know, 18 hours, 16, whatever it was. And I can, nap. I swear to you, I don't think I've taken a nap in 10 years. So I'm eager to see, you know, how Nikki's journey, and it's one of the first things I, I recommend now. So that's my whole sleep spiel that I was really hoping to say, too. I, I hear that on, on a, almost every show, especially with the kids in ADHD, that they're sleeping two hours less per night than they were 20, 30 yes. years ago. Mm -hmm. Then you throw in, you know, the sugar on top of it, and then you try to get them to go through neurofeedback, and it takes longer. It's not as efficient. You know, it, I, yes. I, pa pa parents don't get that, you know, and it, it's exactly uh, if you fix if anything, it, like you said, figure mm -hmm. out the sleep. If the client is not sleeping or the patient, um, when is their brain having time to heal? You know, uh, that is when the learning, the, the synaptic plasticity, long-term potentiation is another term. That's when these neural pathways, you know, they say neural, uh, uh what is it? Um, nerves that fire together, wire together, they're wiring together at night. Um, and if you don't get that sleep, it doesn't like, uh, it doesn't remain. It doesn't, it doesn't solidify. Yeah. So yeah, we need to get people more sleep. 
Well, the stuff that's making us go to sleep again, I'm not an expert, but it's like a blunt instrument that like, yes, it deadens everything. And the brain needs to do some work while you're sleeping, not just to be flatlined. Right. So exactly. Um, you know, that's another thing in a biological system. Something is never just having one effect. We're too interlinked. Um, we're too, um, complex. And so you can't just give somebody a drug and only have the effect you desired. You know, there's, there's always going to be something different. And even that actually even applies to neurofeedback to some degree. I do know people that get, that get side effects. You know, they're usually things like short-term irritability or um, short-term, like the night of sometimes people get worse sleep, but that actually tells you in my opinion, that's actually probably a good thing because it means we're doing something. You know, the one thing a person with a side effect can't say is that we're not doing anything because, and the first time you, you experience something like that, good or bad from neurofeedback, it's like this eureka moment. You're like, wow, I am not just serotonin and dopamine. You know, the medication model, you know, we've, we found out there's a big study this past year None of this stuff may be operating through serotonin, but these brain waves, you know, as an MD friend puts it, the brain waves are higher order. The serotonin and dopamine, those are not there. You know, if you just have serotonin, that's the end point. You feel good. Dopamine and serotonin, they're messengers to get your brain to fire a certain way. And the brain waves are the representate or the, um, the total of, of how they're firing. And, um, that was the eureka for me that got me into neurofeedback. Um, I had heard about neurofeedback and I kind of filed it for sleep. I was looking how to solve this issue and I kind of filed it away. It seemed a little bit, you know, a little woo-woo. You know, I couldn't envision a mechanism of how can I just watch something or hear something and that changes my brain. Now it feels extremely obvious because that's almost just what your brain is. Your brain is always changing. Everything you do changes your brain. But anyway, I filed it away and I kind of ignored it until I saw a study a couple years ago by it's an MIT study by Dr. Lee Wei Tsai. And it is a study on how simply hearing 40 hertz rhythms can change the brain of mice and clear them of plaque, brain plaques, such that those mice had the memories of young mice. When they put them in a maze, the mice could remember again after they're exposed to this. These doctors are now doing this at MIT and other schools. Um, again, Leeway Sai, T-S-A-I. You can look this up, 40 hertz stimuli. It works with light or sound. They're now doing it with humans. They recently showed she has a study with humans earlier. I think it's like only 40 people. It's an early study. It cleared their the inflammation in their brain was greatly reduced. And it caught just by listening to these things. And it caused glial activity, which as Jay talks about glial a lot, they're like the housekeepers of the brain. Um, but when I heard that, I said, and it works to something they think called entrainment, where if your brain hears a rhythm of a certain kind, that affects your brain waves. And that for me was the trigger. For some reason, I was now willing to believe that neurofeedback could work. And I'm really glad for that reason that I came across that study. But that's what it took for me even to, to buy in. Um, Right. But this stuff is going to reach mainstream. We're not there yet. We're we're kind of, I feel like we're starting to take off and people take to it. I actually find they react. It probably depends. 
maybe how how strong you sell it every if, you know if you're everybody knows this is way better but if you come at it as you know this is something that changes your brain waves which is almost more important than these chemical i find they they react better and i think it's because people know everybody knows someone if it's not them even they know someone who tried three four five antidepressants and it didn't work you know the average there's a study i think the average person has to try two and a half antidepressants to get symptom relief and by the way the meta studies on antidepressants um, and arns talks about this they only work for half of people so everybody i think has either been or they know someone that been that person that the medication did not work for and they they know there's got to be something else there's something that explains that and i think there's a willingness to to at least entertain that it's these these brain waves um so very cool Anthony, I like what we got going on here. It's the first <laughs> one. We're going to figure this thing out. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Let's uh, pump up your technology group on uh, Facebook. Please what, do. What, um, what's it called? I run a, a science and technology discoveries. You can also just find me at Anthony Ramos. Um, I'm going to try to make more of those posts public. Um, science and technology discoveries. And the other thing is... Um, you can also check out uh, the Brain Master Group. Neurofeedback Exchange is another Facebook group. There's several, if you'd like to be anonymous, there's several groups on Reddit. And let's just get, cl especially clinicians in there and troubleshoot. And I'm learning things every day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, I'd love for people to join me on there. Yeah, and I, I think what we're going to do is keep keep this keep these hot topics going. Hopefully we can get our listeners and viewers to respond with comments and Give yes. us feedback. Life is all about feedback, whether it's neurofeedback, yeah. right? So I like that. I like uh, that. Give us feedback so we can help people figure out that there's an end game with mental health. Anthony Ramos, thank you for coming on the Neuro Noodle. Neuro Thanks so much, Pete. I appreciate it. We'll talk again. Right. The Neuro Noodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. 